In Daniel chapter 7, the prophet receives a vision of the future in which one final and everlasting kingdom will be established on this world. And he says this in chapter 7, verses 13 to 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now this one, like a son of man, is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, whose preferred title for himself was the Son of Man. This vision of Daniel points to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ that will bring in the final reign and kingdom of God. A reminder that all things will come under Christ's authority. But how does this incredible future come about? Well, it's through what he achieved in his first coming. Today, we celebrate Palm Sunday, the day in which Jesus entered Jerusalem on a young donkey to the shouts of praise and people declaring him to be the King of Israel. But while the title was correct, the motivation was not. No one understood that he came to die for the sins of his people, that this was how he would become king, that this was how he would bring triumph. As we look through the account of the triumphal entry this morning, we're going to see the varied thoughts of all those people involved and take note for how that affects our understanding and our response to Christ. Now this triumphal entry into Jerusalem is such a significant event that it's recorded in all four Gospels. But if you would please turn with me to John's Gospel, and we're going to read chapter 12 and verses 12 to 19. It says this, The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. And so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. And so the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. So in this triumphal entry, there are four 
different attitudes uh, expressed throughout the account. And the first we see is that of Jesus. And so point one, we see the Saviour's conviction. Let me read verse 12 again. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. It is clear from this passage and from the testimony of the other Gospels and from the wider scripture that Jesus was purposeful and determined to come to Jerusalem at this moment, the right moment, so that he could go to the cross for the sins of his people and to be raised again on the third day. For instance, in Luke's gospel, we are told of Jesus' progressive journey towards Jerusalem. Luke's gospel is presented as one long journey from Galilee into Jerusalem. Listen to the writer's care in, in showing Jesus' firm actions. I'm just going to list uh, these, these verses off here. Luke 9, verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Luke 13, 22. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. 17, verse 11. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. Luke 18, 31. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. And then Luke nineteen twenty eight, And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. In John's Gospel, one of the constant refrains uttered by Jesus is that his hour had not yet come. Again, listen to how clear Jesus understood his mission. John 2, 24. And Jesus said to a woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. John 4, 21. Jesus said to a woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. John 7, verse 30. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. John 8.20, these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. And then John 12 verse 23, words uttered by Jesus just after his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And Jesus answered them, the hour has come. For the Son of Man to be glorified. Can you see that there was nothing accidental in Jesus' arrival to Jerusalem? He went with absolute conviction and purpose, determined to do what he had come for. He had come to be glorified, to give his life as a ransom for many, to be physically raised to life and to ascend to the right hand of the Father in heaven. And this was the perfect time, God's timing and sovereign plan. Paul writes in Galatians 4 verse 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under law. Why? Verse 5. To redeem those who were under the law, 
so that we might receive adoption as sons. And furthermore, it is the fulfillment of God's promise to bring redemption, given right back at the moment of the fall when sin and death first entered into this world. In Genesis 3.15, God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And this is what is known as the first gospel. It pointed toward the arrival of Christ Jesus and what he would do when he entered Jerusalem on the path to the cross. So Jesus was coming to Jerusalem determined, purposeful, resolute. And the nature of what he was planning to do is emphasised by the event that he was coming for. Jesus was coming to die on the cross, but it wasn't just any random time of the year. It was the moment of the feast, the great feast of the Jews, the Passover. The festival of Passover and the festival of unleavened bread, which was the seven days following, was a celebration and remembrance of what God had done to rescue the Israelites from slavery in Egypt under Pharaoh. It remembered the night when through Moses, God told the Israelites to sacrifice lambs and then paint the blood of these lambs over the door frames of their houses so that the avenging angel would not come and kill their firstborn sons, the last of the ten plagues. When the angel saw the blood, it would pass over that house. Jesus had come to be the Passover lamb, the sacrifice that would save all who took refuge in him through faith. As John the Baptist declared at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John 1.29 Well, the fact that it was Passover explains partly why there was a large crowd at the triumphal entry. Many people had come for the feast. But the other reason is that of the incredible miracle that Jesus had performed in John chapter 11, that of raising his friend Lazarus from the dead. And so at the beginning of chapter 12, we learn that uh, the Friday afternoon, six days before the Passover began on the following Thursday evening, Jesus arrived in a small town called Bethany, which was about three kilometres from Jerusalem. And then the following evening, the Saturday night, they had a meal at the home of Simon the leper, and among the guests were Lazarus and his sisters Mary and Martha. Well, after the meal, as the Sabbath drew to a close, we read this in John 12, verses 10 to 11. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus whom he had raised from the dead. And so the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Well, these verses help us understand why there was a crowd to welcome Jesus into Jerusalem the next day. But they also highlight the tension in the atmosphere 
at that moment. It was like a powder keg ready to be ignited. There was incredible excitement over the raising of of Lazarus from the death. There was excitement over Jesus' arrival. And there was this fear over what the Jewish authorities were planning. What on earth was going to happen the next day? Well, as we look at this, I want you to see the conviction of the Saviour. Jesus does not flinch in the midst of this environment. He is resolute in his determination to proceed. But there's no angst about the environment that he's about to walk into. He is in complete control. Now, just imagine this scene the next day. You have have people uh, that have journeyed with Jesus from Bethany. Uh, You have people coming out to meet him from Jerusalem. And they're all lining the road, crying out and cheering his arrival. Now, this event is known as Palm Sunday because the crowd had gathered up uh, palm leaves off of date palms that were prevalent in Jerusalem and they were waving them about and they were laying them down uh, in honour of Jesus. Now, palm branches were not specifically associated with Passover as there were uh, other Jewish festivals. However, by the first century, they had clearly come to depict victory. It's significant that that Roman coins were emblazoned with palm fronds as a sign of victory. And so clearly, the people had certain expectations of what Jesus was coming to do. But if the palm branches were a subtle way of wanting Jesus to bring about victory over the Romans, well, their words they cried out were anything but. Now, the words... They cry are taken from Psalm 118, which is part of a collection of psalms that were sung by Jewish pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem for Passover. And Psalm 118 is a song of God's steadfast and enduring love for his people. Verse 25 says, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Well, the word Hosanna comes from the Hebrew word behind, save us, Hosanna, save us. They recognised Jesus as the Messiah, the King of Israel, who had come to save them. And they'd been wanting this moment uh, since the first they saw of Jesus. I mean, after Jesus fed the 5,000, it's recorded in John 6 verse 15, that the crowd tried to take Jesus by force and then make him king. But, but then, like here at Jesus' entry, they had serious misunderstandings concerning the nature of this salvation. They expected the king to rescue them from the dominion of Roman occupation. Whereas Jesus, as Paul explains in Colossians 1, Jesus came to deliver his people from the dominion of darkness through the forgiveness of sin. Yes, Jesus came to be crowned king, but his coronation would be at the cross. And so, without denying his kingship, he does deny the crowd's claim as to what kind of king he was to be. A military king, 
uh, would have ridden into Jerusalem on a mighty steed, on a war horse. But Jesus has organised to be taken in on a young donkey. John records in in chapter 12, verse 14, that Jesus found the beast. But the other Gospels show that Jesus had prearranged this for himself. However, it still shows Jesus' conviction. He would be king. He was king, but not the king they wanted. He was the king that people truly need. The Old Testament quote in verse 15 is a, is a melding of two verses. Fear not comes from Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 9. And it's a reference uh, to Jerusalem being told not to be afraid, but to declare to Judah that good news had arrived, that God had come to bring redemption. The irony, of course, here is that while there is no fear in the crowd's cheers, uh, they have failed to grasp why it is that they should have no fear. The main quote is taken from Zechariah chapter 9. And verse 9, which was a, a prophecy declared more than 400 years before Christ's arrival. That verse sits in the context of God's judgment upon Israel's enemies and of the Lord coming to save his people. The mention of a, a donkey's cult is an expression of humility and it downplays any sense whatsoever that Jesus came to provide a military victory. Indeed, if we read Zechariah 9 and verses 10 to 11, we understand that the king's arrival will lead to peace. And it's also connected with the blood of God's covenant, which points to the fact of what Jesus will do in a few days to bring in the new covenant. Jesus will bring peace through the shedding of his own blood not the blood of Israel's physical enemies. Well, in these verses from John 12, we clearly see the Saviour's conviction. Jesus was not sidetracked by the desires of the crowd. He wasn't coerced by their cheers. He wasn't enamoured with the thought of being what they wanted him to be. In refusing their idea of kingship, he proceeded resolutely to the only possible way that real victory could be won and true kingship could be granted, and that is by way of the cross. In Hebrews 12, verse 2, we read of Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It was the joy of bringing salvation to sinners that took Jesus to Jerusalem. And through his death and resurrection, he ascended as king of kings. And this is heightened when we remember Romans 5, where Paul tells us that Christ did all this while we were still sinners, while we were still enemies of God. If you have trusted in Christ already, then these truths are of immense encouragement to recognise the determination that Christ undertook to save you. If you have not yet trusted in Christ as Lord and, and Saviour, then I implore you, can you not see the depth at which Christ has gone to save his people? 
Can you not see the desperation of sinners that Christ would need to go to such lengths to save them? If you would only call out for God's mercy, humble yourself, repent of your sin and believe in Christ, then you too will find yourself among those whom Christ died for, whom Christ came to save, whom Christ's conviction was directed towards. Now, while Christ was the focus of the triumphal entry, he was not the only one there. And so from the Saviour's conviction, we move to the second attitude we see in verse 16. And so point two, we see the disciples' confusion. Verse 16, his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The disciples' confusion relates to both the actions of the crowd and also to the Old Testament quote that the Apostle John has written in his gospel as an editorial comment. It was not that the crowd was smarter than the disciples, The crowd praised Jesus as king, yes, but they had a false understanding of what his kingship meant. The disciples trusted in Jesus, but they did not grasp all that he had told them and all that he did until after he was glorified, after his death and his resurrection and ascension. Multiple times in John's gospel, it's written that the disciples only understood certain things after Jesus rose from the dead. John chapter 2 records an earlier visit to Jerusalem at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. At that time, he, he cleansed the temple. And remember, Jesus did this twice. There's no contradiction in the Gospels. He did it once at the beginning of his ministry and once at the end. But when asked by the religious leaders what sign he would perform to show that he had the authority to cleanse the temple, we read this from verse 19. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, a similar misunderstanding occurred on the day of the resurrection itself when Peter and John looked into the empty tomb. We read this in John chapter 20, verse 8. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Well, as with everyone else in Israel, the disciples could not pull together the different threads in the Old Testament uh, without the revelation of Jesus. And indeed, without the revealing and illuminating work of the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 7, Jesus testified that whoever believed in him, out of his heart would flow rivers of living water, which John explained as the Holy Spirit who would come to dwell within believers after Jesus was glorified. Well, then during the Last Supper, Jesus explained to the disciples that when the Spirit of truth comes, 
He will guide you into all truth. John 16, 12. Only with the resurrection of Jesus and the gift of the indwelling Holy Spirit would the disciples' confusion be cleared up. Without the resurrection, the literal, physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, nothing makes sense. Nothing. This refutes anyone who thinks you can be a Christian and not believe in the resurrection as an historical event. But if all we had was the resurrection, this would not be enough. The resurrection is true whether we believe it or not. But the only way to believe and to grow in that understanding is through the working of the Holy Spirit. All believers have been regenerated, baptized, indwelled and empowered by the Holy Spirit. He resides in each one of Christ's people and illuminates their hearts and their minds to understand the Bible, the scriptures that he inspired to be written. Now, one immediate example of this is the fact that the Apostle John wrote this gospel account. He is happy to recall his and the other disciples' confusion, but at the same time, he writes with great clarity and understanding, which he attributes to the glorification of Jesus and the gift of the Holy Spirit. As a believer living this side of Pentecost, Let me ask, are you making the most of the Spirit's work? Are you allowing Him to guide you into truth by studying His Word? Are you allowing Him to conform you to Christ by developing His fruit? As infinite beings, we will never be able to comprehend fully the infinite and holy God. But he has gifted us his spirit and his word. So the question is, what are we doing about that to grow in this understanding? The disciples' confusion on Palm Sunday is not part, should not be a part of the believer's experience this side of Pentecost. Okay, well after the disciples, the third attitude we see is expressed by the crowd. We've already seen some of this in the previous verses, but since they're mentioned again from verse 17, I thought it better to deal with them more specifically now. And so point three, we see the crowd's celebration. Now, there are actually two separate crowds of people that John refers to here. In verse 17, uh, there is the crowd that had been with Jesus when he raised Lazarus from the dead. And then in verse 18, there is a crowd that comes out to meet Jesus because they had heard from the first crowd concerning Jesus' miraculous sign. So there were some who had seen the miracle and there were others who had heard about the miracle. But they all came together to cheer at the arrival of the king. Now I want you to notice three things about the nature of the crowd's celebration. Firstly, The response is proper. The response is proper. The people who witnessed Jesus' miracle did exactly the right thing when they went and told of what Jesus had done. The people who had heard the testimony of Jesus' miracle did exactly the right thing in coming to see Jesus. 
the gathered crowd did exactly the right thing in praising Jesus as the coming king. However, while these responses are proper, notice secondly that the reason is poor. As I've already said, the the people were gathered in praise to Jesus because they thought he had come to bring political freedom. They'd not understood that he had come to bring spiritual redemption, to redeem sinners out of slavery to sin. There is a, a superficiality to the crowd's response to Jesus. And as such, notice thirdly that the reliability is predictable. Only within a matter of days would their shouts of celebration be turned to shouts of crucifixion. Even in the next section of John chapter 12, we see the unbelief that reigns in the hearts of the people. Jesus is not fooled by what is on display. John 2.25 tells us that Jesus did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. The parable of the soils recorded in Mark 4 also tells us that Jesus knows clearly the genuineness of people's faith in him. Many will say they accept him and yet turn away, showing that they never truly accepted to begin with. Saving faith in Jesus Christ involves knowing the truth, confessing the truth and obeying the truth. The crowd followed Jesus until he failed to do what they wanted. Well, let me ask, what about you? Are you committed to Jesus even when you come across things in Scripture that challenge your way of thinking? Do you let Christ's word conform you? Or do you conform Christ's word? Are you willing to follow Jesus for all that he is and all that he does? Are you willing to acknowledge your sinfulness and your need for a saviour? Or do you still think that there is some innate goodness in you that will make you acceptable to God? The crowd failed to see that their greatest need was not political freedom, but spiritual freedom. But this is what sin does. It blinds us to our own need. And that is why ultimately salvation is by God's gracious working alone. For without his saving touch, we would never even recognize the true nature of our desperate situation and never call upon his mercy in Jesus Christ. But knowing this, there is no excuse by saying, God didn't choose me so I can't respond. Well, no, God commands a response. You've heard now the good news of God's salvation in Christ today. So how will you respond? Well, now finally, the crowd's celebration is followed up by point four, the Pharisees' consternation. Verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. The actions of this first Palm Sunday cause great consternation for the Pharisees. They are filled with dismay and alarm and worry. 
In their exasperation, they've, they've clearly made this, this grand overstatement in calling, uh, claiming that the whole world has gone after Christ. I mean, the whole world has not even heard of Christ at this point. But to say the world has gone after him is a figure of speech to show Jesus' popularity. The Pharisees, they had been seeking to undermine Jesus' ministry for the past couple of years. And and specifically, just prior to this Passover, they joined with the wider Jewish leadership in putting out an arrest warrant for Jesus. But instead of acting upon it out of fear, the crowds, they flocked to Jesus and they praised him as the coming Messiah. Whatever the Pharisees have have set in place up until this point has completely failed and they are left annoyed and angry. But just remember what it is they are setting themselves up against. Not only have they disregarded everything that Jesus has powerfully said and everything that Jesus has miraculously done throughout his ministry, their current frustration comes on the back of Jesus' greatest miracle to date, that of raising Lazarus from the dead. Now, Jesus had raised others from the dead, but none of them had been buried for four days. There is such hardness of heart here that the leaders they had associated themselves with had made plans to kill Lazarus as well. As Jesus, to get rid of the evidence, Lazarus being the evidence of Jesus' miraculous power and authority. But here is the thing if you plot against God, you will always be frustrated. Psalm 2 spells this reality out very clearly. The first six verses read as follows Why do the nations rage? And the peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. But he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now, from an earthly perspective, it may not look like the plans of the wicked are being frustrated by God. In fact, Asaph, in Psalm 73, is a godly man whose faith is almost surrendered when he looks upon the prosperous lives of those who disregard God. But God is sovereign. And even the evil plans of men are used for his glory. I mean, think of Peter's speech in Jerusalem at Pentecost about eight weeks after Palm Sunday. In Acts 2, 23, Peter says this, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Peter said to the Jews, You killed Jesus, but even this act was part of God's sovereign plan. Or more specifically, it was God's plan for Christ to die, but you are still responsible for killing him. Ultimately then, 
If you work against God, it will not merely lead to consternation, but catastrophe. When Jesus returns, he will not be riding on a donkey. He will be riding on a war horse. The Apostle John has a vision of this assured future in Revelation 19 verse 11. He says, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. May the reality of this situation have the appropriate effect on your heart if you are someone who is raging against God. May you know that this is what awaits. And that's why, as the Apostle Paul declares in Acts 17 from verse 30, he says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all. How? By raising him from the dead. In the end, every single person will bow the knee to Christ Jesus. So you can bow the knee now in humility and receive forgiveness for your sin and new life and hope and assurance and all the blessings of God's gracious kingdom. Or you can bow the knee later in fear and receive judgment, eternal judgment for your sin. God commands all people everywhere to repent. Well, today we have reflected upon Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem to the shouts of Hosanna, God save us, and the waving of palm branches. But all this with a very mixed response. While Jesus displayed great conviction, others were confused Others celebrated, but on a superficial level, and still others were greatly concerned and frustrated at his apparent success. But Christ, determined, resolute, convicted, he headed into that Passion Week. He headed to the cross, and he headed to the grave. And then, as the new week began, he headed out of his tomb with a glorified resurrection body. In closing this morning, let me take you once more to a vision of the end, where where there is no wavering in understanding, no misconception here, and no wavering in vigour in praise to God. In Revelation 7 verses 9 to 10, we get a picture of the song of the redeemed. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. May you recognize the triumph of our Savior and give him the praise and the honor and the obedience that is rightly his as sovereign king. Let's pray.
Dear Lord, we thank you for King Jesus. We thank you for his determination to go to the cross even while his people were still raging against him. Father, we are no different from those who stood one week shouting uh, praise and celebration at his arrival and a week later uh, shouting crucify him. We in our sinful nature are blinded uh, uh, to our own rage against God. And yet we are so ever grateful. The words just do not come to express how thankful we are that by the power of your spirit you have regenerated our hearts and our minds that we might see the king as he truly is and what he has done. As we head into uh, this week and, and Good Friday at the end and Resurrection Sunday, may you help us this week to reflect deeply to meditate on these these verses of the Passion Week and to recognise the greatness and grace of King Jesus and the triumph that he has brought. In his name we pray. Amen.